Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show that likes to question societal expectations. Today we're live from the Happy Place Festival in Tatton Park and I'm chatting to Vicky Patterson. You've just got to exercise a little bit of like compassion and grace and understand every time that you are in a place that's exactly where you're meant to be. When I just lose that stone, I'm going to go on the date naps. When I just get a bit better at my job, I'm going to apply for that promotion. And if you're always waiting for that when if moment, you're just never going to get any of the things you deserve. If you're always waiting to be somebody better, you're never going to get these lovely little moments in life, you know. Vicky first appeared on our screens on reality show Geordie Shaw and she really captured the nation's hearts in 2015 when she won I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. She's very open about how much she's changed over the last 15 years or so and I know her vulnerability has inspired so many other people to embrace who they really are too. You may well have seen it already, but last year, Vicky made a poignant documentary called Vicky Patterson, Alcohol, Dad and Me. You'll hear in this chat just how much of an impact it all had, not only on her relationship with her dad, but also her own relationship with alcohol. Something else she's been learning more about recently is PMDD, that's pre-menstrual dysphoric disorder. We explore that in this conversation too. I'm also going to introduce you to Steve. Ah, Steve, such a legend. Steve was one of our wonderful British Sign Language interpreters on stage with us at the festival. (laughs) He features quite heavily in this episode and quite rightly so. Total legend. He and all our other interpreters across the festivals were absolutely fabulous. So a huge thanks to them. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, let's head to Tatton Park. This is the show. my darling take a seat there is so many people here I know aren't they lovely we've got a lovely bunch for you are you good my darling yeah I'm really good I am really nervous I'm not a natural public speaker you are brilliant I was listening come on as if I know I'm not everyone thinks I'm super confident but this is a little bit intimidating so Ah. do you know what I think it's really good to say that because um I absolutely love doing this festival and I love doing these podcasts but of course, like the whole thing's nerve-wracking, and I think it's good to sort of be really honest about that, that whenever you're doing anything in the public domain or in front of people, it's really nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm a bit of an overthinker as well, so I'm not just, like, worried about what I'm saying. I'm worried about how I'm being received, and I'm also panicking that poor Steve can keep up with us as well. (laughs) Steve's absolutely nailing it already. Steve's doing our signing for us throughout the weekend. And Steve, I mean, we could talk really quickly and see how Steve copes. I think it'd be absolutely <laughs> fine. 
Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> thank you, Steve. You absolute legend. Um, Vicky, thank you for coming back to the Happy Place Festival Pleasure. because you were in London as well. We're so appreciative of your time. Thank you. Honestly, mate, like I know I don't have to tell you this, but I was proper blown away when I came in London. Like it's just such a wonderful thing, and everybody's like you know, so nice and kind and happy. And it's just, I think there should be more things like this, mate. I think it's lovely. So I was honoured to be asked back. Well, I'm so glad that you decided to come back here as well because I didn't get to the chance to interview you the first time around. You were with wonderful Bryony Gordon. Was but I've got so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, <laughs> and I want to start by saying from the outside, from looking at your social media and seeing where you're at and the documentaries and books and everything you're doing, you seem to be in a really good place in life. I am, yeah. I'm very careful that I don't wax too lyrically about it because I'll start to sound like a smug arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, you can do that. Um, but like anybody, there's been loads of people here who've got no clue who I am and that's absolutely fine. But for anybody, That's a lie, <laughs> but fine, we'll go with it. But the, for anybody who has followed me journey a little bit or does know, like they'll know that that wasn't always the case. And I wasn't always like in a really good place. I've had to sort of work quite hard on myself and cut loads of things out of my life and cut loads of people out of my life and do more of other things and stuff to be a happy, healthy, well person. Um, so no, I take great pride in the fact that um, I am becoming somebody I'm quite proud of. And I'm quite emotional about it, so <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but no, I am. I'm, I'm on my way to being really happy, I'd say. What a beautiful thing. Thank you. And I think, like you've just alluded to, a big part of being in a good place, we always assume that it must have, the big part of it must be the exterior. What's going on in our world? What we're achieving? What we've got? Where we're at in life? But actually, I think the biggest key to being in a good place is liking yourself. And you just said there that that's, that's where you're at. You're learning to have that self-compassion and, yeah. and you're proud of yourself. What do you, how did you get to that place? I think it's, a, it's an easy thing to say, yeah, I like myself these days, I'm in, I'm in a good place. But how, how did you get to that level of self-compassion? It's like such a good point, mate. Like everybody looks at people and if they're sort of, if they've got a nice family or if they're like achieving like if they're successful in a workspace people think they must be happy you know they're doing great but actually it's not about the external at all it's completely about how you feel it's the internal and more often than not we're so bothered about how we appear to everybody else we don't focus on that but I got myself into I think a, a quite a dark place I'd say um years of like projecting an image that wasn't necessarily who I was um, drinking too much, surrounding myself with people that probably didn't have my best interests at heart, ultimately just not living a way that I was I was proud of. Um, and I was on a hiding to nothing fern. Like I couldn't have gone on much longer going on like living that way. Um, certainly not in the industry I'm in. So I I started to I got I got therapy. I got a life coach. And I removed myself from situations that didn't bring us peace. Like, contrary to popular belief, like I'm actually not a very good drinker at all. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not a very nice person when I've drank too much. You know, I, I don't, 
and I could forgive us if I'm wrong, but like, I don't know many people who have a skin full and are just proper lovely. Mm. Like, it's you know, rare. It's very rare. Like, somebody is either crying and somebody's either fighting or somebody's like, I just want to go home. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I feel like anywhere near intoxicated, I think, how can I get out of here? How <laughs> can I get to bed? Really quickly. Oh, you're the elusive backdoor. Oh, you want to see me? I don't say goodbye to anyone. I vanish. I literally disappear in a puff of smoke. I read somewhere that the people who do that, the people who backdoor at parties, save three years of their life. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I read <laughs> I've done it so often. We might be on like 10 years. You're smashing it, mate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I'm, and I unfortunately was one of these like horrible combinations of all of them. Like I'd, I'd go through it all, like I'd cry, I'd want to kiss everybody and then I'd want to fight everyone. <laughs> it was just awful. Um, and I obviously have a very complicated relationship with alcohol and given me dad's illness, um, I realized that I had to really address my relationship with it, you know? So it led us to work out that actually I'm not a club person I'm not a big drinker and the people that I was knocking around with who I only saw in those sort of scenarios like they weren't really the people for me either so over the last I'd say like five years I've changed the way I socialize I've changed the people I see like I spend time with um I focus a lot more on sort of the things that bring me peace I don't put myself in situations like often that bring us anxiety and will lead us to drink too much, you know, because I know it's just not, it's not good for us. So that's been a huge part. But yeah, like I, I advocate for like therapy and talking through your problems and counseling and stuff loads because that's really helped me. Yeah, without a doubt. Just unpicking everything. <laughs> I feel so sorry for you, mate. Don't worry. We've all been there. <laughs> We've all been there with the... It's your dad. Is he all right? <laughs> right. Did you do that? <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Can you oh, just tell man. him that you're watching a podcast with Vicky Patterson and you will get it to him later? He's going to have Because I'm now going to have to worry about that as well as if this interview's any good. <laughs> so just, if you could put my mind at ease <laughs> and then I'll crack on. Thank you, darling. Um... Where was I? Yes. Do you know what? I, newspapers. I, yeah, newspapers. <laughs> I absolutely loved that documentary that you made about your dad. I thought it was incredibly courageous because not only was it, you know, you were on a learning curve and exploring the subject of alcohol, but you also had to have conversations with your dad that you hadn't had before. Yeah. And it's so strange. I think there's always this sort of discord with our parents or carers, whoever we've grown up with, that we can have a laugh, we can have lighthearted chat, but it's very difficult to get into the arena of talking about very real subjects and things that we're all aware of, but nobody talks about. So this was new territory for you, having to approach his drinking and asking him about it and asking him to make changes, it was, it was very, very challenging for you to do that. The whole thing was dead scary, Fern. Like, apart from anything else, like, I'm in a new space professionally. Like, you know, like, I, I haven't made a documentary before. I haven't made an author doc. So that space was new. Um, and I was trying to do my best in that arena. But then also you've got this huge personal element um, which you, I couldn't ignore. 
mm. you know? And it's so hard, like, when you, as a child, have to almost flip the script and parent your parent. Like, that's not natural. And having those conversations are uncomfortable and awkward and hard, and that's why we avoid having them. Because it's so much easier to just laugh about it or make a silly joke or ignore it entirely. But actually, that's what I'd realized I'd been doing through making the documentary. I discovered that for all of my adult life, I was, me dad has been an alcoholic. And um, I'd been enabling him, essentially, by brushing things under the carpet and not holding them accountable. And God, doing those things to someone who you know is vulnerable and you know is hurting and you know is not doing these things on purpose, it hurts. You feel like a dickhead. And you don't want to make anything worse for them when you know they're completely going through it. But the fact of the matter is, by ignoring it and acting like it's not happening or in some way excusing his behaviour, you're enabling him to continue doing it to hurt himself. So are you why did you feel worried to say anything because you didn't want to upset him further? So you're trying to sort of... It's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you're trying to protect him by not mentioning it. But like you say, that ends up facilitating the cycle to continue. So extremely challenging to, to walk into that conversation and yeah. to bring up new subject matters. Do you think you can find peace knowing that he might not ever stop drinking? The documentary was, like, super illuminating because it allowed me to address things with me dad that I've been hiding from for like 20 years. It allowed me dad to speak openly about something that, quite frankly, like he's never been able to get a handle of. Um, and it brought us closer, it really did. And it gave me a deeper understanding of what he's going through. But it did, it did obviously make us realize that alcoholic recovery is not linear. Like, you know, you don't just wake up one day and go, God, drink his rubbish. I'm fucking over this. Yeah. Like you are, if you are an addict of any description, you are always going to struggle. And that's a really bit uphill to swallow. Because for my whole life, I've been able to convince myself that one day my dad will just wake up and be all right. Sorry. <laughs> but accepting that, every day will be a struggle for me dad was really hard yeah. and God hard for him as well you know yeah so um I am grateful to channel four and the documentary and and everybody who watched it for loads of reasons but it it didn't mean that the outcome was like it, it didn't mean that the outcome was great it was really hard um but I have to look on the bright side and say that it's brought me and him loads closer. I understand his illness better. Um, and I can support him in a way that is actually helpful rather than just facilitating them. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for showing that, Vicky. I mean, we also saw in the documentary you talking about your own past. And, you know, like most people in their 20s, you were going out loads, you were drinking, you were getting into all sorts of chaos but you were doing it under the scrutiny of the public eye, which is never much fun. Especially when you then, like all humans, change and grow. And I'm sure most of us sat here today in this lovely tent can look back at parts of our lives and think, oh God, wish I hadn't done that. And we have regret or we cringe about certain things. 
did it help you find some sort of clarity or peace with you in the past? Yeah, definitely. I think, oh God. So everybody's seen me having a really good time in my 20s, haven't they? Yeah. Um, for better or worse. And um, like that was, I think had I not done the documentary and had I not learned a lot about alcoholism and stuff, I don't think I would have understood a lot of my triggers. So I am not a very... Like, I struggle in social situations, which, again, shocks loads of people. They think, oh, she must be dead confident, dead outgoing, and I'm not. I've got a bouncy leg. Like, I'm looking around. I bite <laughs> my nails. I can't wait to fucking go home. <laughs> like, I'm just scared the whole time. And, like, people can mistake it for arrogance or ignorance or whatever. I'm just terrified. I'm terrified. Someone's going to ask us something I don't want to answer or I'm going to say something wrong or whatever. The whole thing doesn't bring me peace. So I would drink. And like, you can imagine being on a show like Geordie Shaw, like I'm a coiled spring. I was nervous the whole time, terrified of what I was gonna say or do something wrong or that somebody wasn't gonna like us. So I did the only thing that I'd been conditioned to understand would calm us down. And that was drink. And of course, then I made everything worse, didn't I? Because <laughs> you go on like such, well, I did, not everybody, but I, I would go on like such an arsehole. So then I would have to deal with that all the next day, the apologies, the guilt, the whatever. And I guarantee what's going to help take that away was drink. Yeah. So it was this horrible toxic cycle. And doing the documentary allowed me to realize, oh, God, I'm not good in big social situations. That's why I turned to something like a social lubricant like alcohol. Um, and I don't love like X, Y, and Z. That's why I drink more and I struggle with get whatever it is. Um, so no, doing the documentary was instrumental in me improving my relationship with alcohol. I think it's really good to hear about social anxiety. I certainly have it. And again, that might surprise some people, might not surprise some people. I love communicating. I'm much better one-on-one -on -one with someone if I'm having a cup of tea with someone or at someone's house, but those big social situations, I feel exactly the same. I probably in my 20s did absolutely deal with it, drinking and just sort of, yeah, having a gin and tonic to sort of take the edge off. Now, I just don't go out. That's like <laughs> my coping mechanism. I just don't go. But I think so many people suffer with that and feel we can look around a room at a party or even something like all sitting in this tent today and assume that everybody else around us feels a level of comfort. Like, they don't like they're coping, all right, with this social situation. Whereas probably 90% of us are in our heads going, am I sitting weird? Do I look all right? What's my hair doing <laughs> at the back? I can't actually see what's going on right there. Like, we're just worrying constantly about every little judgment that someone might have so and in our country it's a go-to like you you know cheers you have a drink it's someone's birthday cheers it's it's so ingrained in us the way we sort of move through the year absolutely so it's it's really good to sort of unpick that and look at how we what we use to ease that social anxiety I also think it's really important in the conversation of I guess self-improvement we're in this you know, strange time where wellness is talked about a lot more and in good ways and maybe less helpful ways. 
And I sometimes feel a bit irked when we talk about self-improvement and like there's this better version of us in the future and that version of us will cope with life and everything is going to be fine. And I think we've got to find the middle ground with that, which I believe you've found really perfectly. So you make changes, you lose things that aren't working for you, but you don't become this brand new person and then sort of hate on the old you. I think it's so important in this self-improvement journey, whatever language you want to use, that we can look back and not abandon old versions of ourselves. Because I certainly went through a phase where I thought, oh God, I'm so embarrassed by young me. Oh my God, cringe like me on kids TV. Hey, doing all this stuff. Embarrassed, don't want to look at it, abandon. And that's the worst thing you can do. We've got to change and grow, but not ditch parts of ourselves. I think that's, it's a fine line and it's really tricky to do, but it's imperative if you want to feel okay. Yeah. And it's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah. Like, so I struggled so much with the, with the version of me that was presented in the early twenties, you know, and like, uh, for a long time, I've tried to distance myself from that image but I've got to take accountability, you know, like regardless of the fact that I was on a show and there was pressure and there was whatever else, like I did do those things. And like, regardless of whether the cameras were on or not, I probably would have behaved in a very similar way. That's just who I was, you know, I was brash. I was aggressive. I was lost. I was misguided and I was struggling to deal with things that were going on at home. And I used alcohol as a coping mechanism, right? And it would be dead easy for us to be like, oh, but I don't recognize that girl now. Like I drink green juice and I do <laughs> 5 a.m. yoga and I give birth to an avocado. <laughs> but it's not fair. Mm. If it wasn't for that girl, I wouldn't be where I am now. And we need to stop being so hard on ourselves because in 10 years time, this version of me here, I'm not going to recognize her either. Doesn't mean she wasn't great. Doesn't mean that she didn't like, she, she didn't like grow and change and evolve and try and be better and do brilliant things. Like you've just got to exercise a little bit of like compassion and grace and understand every time that you are in a place that's exactly where you're meant to be. Yeah. I read somewhere that there's this like, when I, when I just movement, you know, when I just lose that stone, I'm going to go on the date naps. Like when I just get a bit better, I'm going to do this. When I just get a bit better at my job, I'm going to apply for that promotion. And if you're always waiting for that when if moment, you're never going to get fucking anything. Yeah. You're not. Like, seize the day. Is that how the quote actually ended? Yeah, that's exactly... (laughs) I believe I've recorded it verbatim. (laughs) Um, But no, like, you're just never going to get any of the things you deserve if you're always waiting to be somebody better. You're never going to get these lovely little moments in life, you know? Like I met my fella, right? And I was not healed from my past relationship. Like I absolutely wasn't. I was still struggling, I was processing trauma. And everybody around us was going, just wait, just wait. You you don't wanna like throw yourself into something new and blah, blah, and all this. And I was letting this get into my head, right? And I was thinking it is too soon, it is too soon. It was my makeup artist at the time. And she was like, what are you waiting for? She's like, what, what are you waiting for? She went, what are you going to do if you don't go out with him? Are you just going to sit in the house and cry again? And I was thinking, that was what I had planned, are you? <laughs> and she was like, you need to start getting yourself out there. And I did. I put myself out there and I went on a date with him and I texted the group chat that night and said to me mates, I went, buy a fucking hat. Yes. Because he's the one. And if I had... There he is. Yeah, he's the one. All right, I can. 
<laughs> and we are, we're getting married next year. <laughs> Thank you. But if I'd have waited till I was, till I'd done processing that trauma or till I was over that man who wasn't right for us or till I was better, I might have missed my chance. Stop waiting to be this other person. You're brilliant as you are now. Take the chances, go on the date, have risks because that's when life gets exciting and good. Yes, Vicky. <laughs> It's so true. And also, there, there's never going to be a version of us that's like the perfect version no. that's, you know, nailed it and healed from everything we've ever experienced and <laughs> is feeling perfectly complete. And actually, I think what I've learned over the years is from many people I've interviewed or just seen moving through the same sort of industry that I'm in, the people that you assume, oh my God, they've got it nailed. Look at them. They're totally coping and they look amazing whatever they've got all sorts of stuff going on that we don't know about everyone's dealing with stuff and we've got to stop comparing ourselves but like you say act now do that thing now you're brilliant you're perfect as you are it's a beautiful thing i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One thing I'm very grateful for personally following you on Instagram is how much you share and how generous you are in talking about things that actually are massively helpful. And I think you've definitely worked out the difference between posting for the sake of it and posting because you know it's going to touch someone and it's going to help someone on any given day. There's lots of different subjects that you cover. One that I think has been extremely helpful for women, but maybe some men too, is discussing body image. Yeah. And again, finding this sense of peace and love where you're at at any given time. What has helped you get to a point of really feeling good in your own skin? So um, I've been like both extremes. When I was like drinking too much and partying too hard and then eating all the carbs in the world to recover from it, um, I got to a place where I was lethargic probably unhealthy and very unhappy and I'm not talking about my size I'm talking about how I actually felt like so much of what I like about myself is not a physical attribute I like that like I like that I want to get to know people that I'm chatty and friendly and when I'm not feeling confident like I'm just not that person you know so I lost all this sense of self when I became unhealthier and bigger and all the rest of it and I ended up through desperation, losing too much weight and becoming very small for my frame. And I'm not talking about these people who are naturally gorgeous and slim and all the rest of it. Like, I am just not meant to be that small. My head was massive. <laughs> like, I had, I've looked back at pictures where I thought I looked the ducks nuts and I've just got a fucking huge head. <laughs> and it's insane. And I, it was the phase when we also did the quiffs as well. So the whole aesthetic is just mental. And I, it, that didn't bring us happiness either. I had this vision in my head. I was like, if you can just get to a size six, you're going to be so happy. You're going to stop getting your heart broke. You're going to stop making silly mistakes. You're going to succeed in work and all these things. And that was 
what I genuinely believe to be true, you know? And of course, when I got to the size six and I had the thigh gap and I did all the things that society told me would make me happy, and I still wasn't happy. I didn't even know where to go from that. I had no clue. I was like, well, this is what you've told us. Like I needed to have to be successful and happy and loved and desired and all these things. And I still feel like shit. So it was from that point where I thought, hang on a second. Neither one of these extremes brought me happiness. It must lie somewhere in the middle for me. You know, balance. So going out and like doing a two hour walk with the lads. That's me dogs, by the way, Max and Myla. <laughs> but then coming back and having a bacon sandwich, you know, like going out and smashing a Pilates session, but coming back and having a takeaway with me fella. Like I've accepted that my body has squishes and it wiggles and folds. And actually that's, that's my happy place. That like five to 10 pounds that for years I convinced myself I needed to lose to be happy, successful, desirable, whatever. That's me life. That's me glasses of wine with the girls. That's me takeaways with Erkan. It's me whatever, you know? And we need to stop punishing ourselves for living our lives and enjoying it, you know? And also thinking that if we get to some sort of certain size, everything's going to be great. Because life can be great at any size if you're just kind to yourself and you're healthy and happy, you know? So that was the journey that got us to where I am now. And I sort of thought, oh God, I'm 35 and I've just got here. I really would like to get this message out there. So maybe I can tell somebody at 25 and they, can, they don't have to go through all the things I went through. So no, I always endeavor to use my platform to spread that message because it's a hard one to learn, isn't it? Like loving yourself is a difficult one. Yeah, especially on social media yeah. where we can easily fall down a rabbit hole of looking at people that seem to be living the dream and everything looks aesthetically perfect, whatever that means. And we can start comparing ourselves and falling down a, just a pit of despair. It's just pointless. So I love that you're just rallying against that and putting out good positivity. It's so important. And another subject that you've more recently talked about in depth is your menstrual cycle. And I really appreciated this post the other day where you were saying that for years you've struggled with your periods and pain and hormones and mood around it. And for years you'd been fobbed off and thought that you had to just crack on and go, you know what? Yeah, this is just part of being a woman. I'm just going to get on with it. And actually, more recently, this year, you decided enough's enough. I actually want to get to the bottom of this. So what was the catalyst? Had you just sort of got a bit bored of feeling rubbish? Shit. Yeah. Um, menstrual cycle was a very professional way of putting it. Yes, wasn't it just? I'm very professional with my little notebook here. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I call her the crimson devil. Yes. She's a prick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It is awful that we have to have them. It's so rubbish. I love being so rubbish. Like, I feel like we... But not that bit. That's the only bit I don't like. Yeah. Um, big bug. Um. <laughs> oh, we've got dragonfly. <gasps> That's very beautiful. It's nice. floating through the tent. Good sign. Good sign. It's an omen of sorts. Um, so, yeah. So, I've always... I've, up until I was sort of mid-20s, I would describe I had, like... A, I, I, Say I had what most people describe as a very normal period. Like PMS is rubbish. Like, you know, you're sort of, you want all the, all the sweets and all the cakes and you want to chin your fella and you want to cry one minute and then like conquer the world the next. Like, it's horrible. It's hard. But I always had what I describe as like quite a normal pe like period and 
menstrual cycle. Um, <laughs> and then as I got older, it started to get progressively worse. And like, I sort of thought to myself, oh, this is just it. You know, I've heard a lot of women lament that as you get older, it gets a bit worse. So I'll just take it on the chin. Um, but the last five years, I've just been, so, I've struggled so much. And I was like, surely every woman cannot be going through this to this extent because it's fucking torture. In what way? What, what, was, what was really troubling you? So obviously period cramps are crap, but it was more the emotional things that came alongside it that I had found debilitating. So it started off as like two weeks of the month, but it started to grow into like three weeks of the month. So I, um, some nights I can't sleep, but then some, some nights, I, like some days I physically can't wake up. It's like next level fatigue. And then sometimes I'm, um, this was the scary one for me. The scary one I, f I found was I lost the passion and love for things that normally brought us joy. And like anybody sitting in this room, you sort of know that that is a sign of depression. So I was thinking like, am, am I depressed? Like, I love me fella, I've got a wicked life, my job's mint, why am I depressed? And then I was like, well, hang on, because I have these moments of clarity where I absolutely love me life and I'm dead grateful for everything, so maybe I'm not depressed. But when you're in this PMDD cloud, like you can't see the wood for the trees. I don't know if that's the saying. Is it forest for the trees? No, I think wood, wood for the trees. It's something yeah. about wood. Another excellently executed quote. Yeah, smashed it. Um, so you, you can't tell yourself, this is just about your period. This is just about your hormones. It, it tells you, no, you're rubbish. You are crap. And everybody thinks you're crap and the world would be a better place without you in it. So when you heard this particular doctor you'd seen this year, say PMDD, what was, what was the feeling? Did that connected with you instantly? Like, this yeah. is what's going on for me. So social media gets such a bad rep for, and like, I'll be the first to say like, oh, people aren't being kind this month or whatever. But actually it was, it was instrumental in me getting a diagnosis because I was talking about my periods on Instagram and I was saying like, two weeks of the month, like I get dark thoughts, Two weeks of the month, like, I can't motivate myself. I hate my job. I hate this. Two weeks of the month, I'm like this. And women would reach out to me and say, sounds like you've got PMDD, Vicky. This is not normal PMS. And obviously, you haven't been told off doctors loads of times over the years. You just need to get on with it. Like, loads of women are going through this. Come on. Like, I was embarrassed to assume I had anything more than just PMS. But I felt validated by their, by their reassurance that there was something else more serious going on. So that bolstered us to go and see a, a private doctor in the end, um, a professional in the space. And when she said, it sounds to me like you've got PMDD, I just broke down. I was over the moon that actually I wasn't just fucking mental. Yeah. Because that's how I was being made to feel like I was, you know? If you go one day from like not being able to get out of bed and hating your fella and hating your life and everything, fine the next day, like, what other explanation is there other than you're just not well? So to feel like there was an answer for why I was feeling this way, an answer that affects 10% of women, I might add, and also probably more were just completely misdiagnosed loads or expected to get on with it. Yeah. It felt really, really validating. And what can you do to help lessen it, if anything? It's manageable. So you never cure it, it's manageable. Yeah. You're right. But um, there's loads of stuff. But it's kind of like, a, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. 
like loads of stuff isn't, like loads of medication isn't. So I've started on the combination pill, um, which hopefully should lessen my symptoms and make things slightly more palatable and less debilitating. Um, but if that doesn't work, there are different avenues we can explore and loads of holistic things, you know. So I'm going to start, I'm going to get that hat on next and try and find out what works for me. So it's going to be a bit of a journey, but I feel liberated in a sense that I actually have that diagnosis and I can go forward rather than just suffering in silence. Not that I suffered in silence, I'm a right whinge. <laughs> rather than just suffer. But it's mad how little any of us know about our hormones and they control so much of our physical symptoms, our mood, how we're cognitively thinking, and we, we just don't know anything about it. We're it's not, wild. I think we're so unprepared, like especially as women. Like, do you just remember the sex education we got at school? Like, I, oh put my a condom, God. I put a condom on a cucumber and they just fucking yeah, said yeah. on me. We had this, like, weird video that had, like... <laughs> oh, God, is he... The cucumber. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think Steve's ad-libbing at this point. I think he's, he's adding his own little moment there. Um, I, I dread to think what's happening. <laughs> Steve's luckily behind me, um, or unluckily. Um, uh, yeah, we, our sex education video had like robots in it or aliens or something. Like one of my schoolmates is here, I need to clarify that later, but there was definitely like robots in it. I'm like, what has that got to do with anything? I just don't Absurd. know. Absurd. I don't know. But like, we're just so unprepared, misinformed and uneducated when it comes to our bodies. And like, it leads to really problematic narratives and the majority of people have been so kind and so lovely. And I've had so many messages about, from women being like, Vicky, I could, have, I could have wrote your post myself. And thank you. I'm going to go and I'm going to... I've been, like, poor by doctors for years. I'm going to go and be more persistent. Like, if, it felt like it, it really helped women. But for every 10 of them, right, there's one lass who's like, the rest of us just fucking get on with it, you know? Brilliant. That's helpful. Thank you think... so much. Ooh. I don't know if that's helpful, Sandra. No. I, really think, I don't think it is. I think you're perpetuating a really toxic narrative that women are just meant to get on with it. I agree. So I think we need more education. Like, for, even just for our own sanity. God, if I knew a bit more about hormones, if I knew a bit more about what was meant to be going on in my body, I wouldn't have had a horrible five years, you know? I would have pushed for a diagnosis sooner. So I think we get let down in that space. And the only way we're going to it's going to improve as if we talk more yeah you know and if we support other women who you see is going through something you know let's let's just be kinder to each other and ourselves yes and actually this goes back to the sort of the start of our conversation this is all very helpful in terms of you being nice to yourself because if you're going through all of this every month yeah. feeling awful it's so easy when you're going through anything it doesn't have to be period related but you're going through something so easy for us to turn on ourselves and go what's wrong with me why am I not coping I'm such an idiot like all this stuff that all of us think all the time but don't necessarily articulate out loud knowing what's going on gives you a chance to go I'm actually going to be nice to myself today and if I can't handle seeing other people or actually I really need to lean on other people whatever way you're going that you allow yourself to do that rather than thinking you've got to crack on you've got to cope you've got to keep your mouth shut and just get on with it. I think it helps us internally find that sort of self-compassion as well. Absolutely. Like, 
I was, I got myself to the point where I just felt embarrassed and I felt weak. And because so many doctors and so many people had told me like, everyone else is just getting on with this, Vicky, like grow up. I was like, I can't deal with this thing that every other woman can deal with. You are weak, you are embarrassing and you should be ashamed. And like that, that thought process is so dangerous, especially when you're feeling all the things you're already feeling, you know, it just exacerbates it. So I think, I think being kind to yourself is like, it's dead easy to say, isn't it? Yeah. But it's imperative if you're going to be happy and healthy and well. And like, there's little things I always do, you know, like if I know I'm getting myself into that mind, like that mindset where the PMD thing is taking at control and my hormones are raging through my body and telling us I'm crap and all that. Like, I think retreat, do what your body needs, do what your mind is telling you you want. If that is like watching friends over and over again and eating a giant cookie on the sofa, do that. Mm, you know? That sounds well good. So, so good. Like, I wish I was doing that. Just yeah, you're so right because, I mean, I spoke to this um, amazing therapist who's now a friend of mine called Owen O'Kane. He's been on the podcast. He's written some incredible books. And one of his main tips is always to remember how important self-kindness is, which again sounds really like throwaway and flippant. Mm. But we could be doing all the stuff, right? We could be doing yoga every day. We could be drinking gallons of green juice, doing everything that everyone tells us to do to make ourselves feel all right. But if we're not kind to ourselves, none of that will work. And that is quite a terrifying thought because it's not easy just to all of a sudden like yourself. But I think it gives us permission to really focus on trying yeah. and to even just land on acceptance rather than self-compassion. Because otherwise the rest of it's all pointless. Yeah. It's so, so important. And also I think there is, like you've said, great power in saying this stuff out loud. Not only are you, you know, you're in a position where you can help other people by saying, do you know what, I've really struggled with my periods and hopefully this is helpful. But I think even in our own little circles, if we say to a mate, do you know what, I'm finding this really hard. It just somehow extinguishes part of it. So I even remember when, when I first started having panic attacks, I thought I was the only person on the planet that was having panic attacks, which is highly narcissistic but I was like no one else has ever been through this and I can't talk about it because it's too weird yeah. and no to one's gonna admit that it's gonna you know that that's rumbling around in my brain and as soon as I said it out loud how many people in my friendship circle and the outskirts of my friendship circle went oh my god me me too all the time in this situation this is the trigger whatever so now if I say it out loud I don't have them yeah because I'm going oh god I might just to let you know in this situation I might I might go into panic. And then I don't, because there's, there's no threat then. I've said it. You, I think it just helps take the edge off. You take away the fear of it, yeah. don't you? And like we do, we always think we're the only person who's going through anything. But the fact of the matter is, everybody's fighting a battle that nobody knows anything about. Yeah. And if you talk about it, if you verbalize it, if you put it out there, not only do you take away a lot of its power, but you also invite other people to talk about it too. The thing we all want most in the world is to not feel like we're on our own. Yeah. That's why we look for romantic partners. That's why we seek out friendships. That's why we're friends with Barry from accounts from work, who's a total knobhead. <laughs> oh, bless Barry. Sorry, Barry. Sorry, Baz. But you just don't want to be on your own. No. So and I think we're really scared of being rejected. And that's why we don't say anything out loud. Because we think, if I admit this thing, people in my life are going to just walk, or they're going to think I'm strange, or they're going to judge me. And it's so often, well, it's 
I'd say 99% of the time, not the case. And if, that, if someone does judge you for the wrong reasons, get rid. Get rid of the toxic people in your life. Absolutely. You've got to look after yourself. Yeah. And like going back to what you were saying there, like as women, sorry, fellas, this is my only experience. I've never been a boy. So as women, I think we try so hard to be absolutely everything that everybody in our life needs. The best mother, the best like employee, the best boss. Like you try to be everything and you just end up, you end up stretching yourself too thin. You know, when you get on a plane and the air hostess tells you, you must put on, in case of emergency, you must put on your mask first. Like that feels mental to me as a woman. I think, oh no, like I'll make sure Erkan's got his on first. Or if I was sitting with me niece or my sister, I'd make sure all of them have got theirs on first. But if I was to do that, I might be able to help get somebody's on right first, but I wouldn't be able to help anybody else. However, if I look after myself first and put mine on, I can help half the plane. If you are not making sure your cup is full, if you are not taking care of yourself, if you're not meditating, drinking green juice, eating cookies on the sofa, watching your, the shows that you like, whatever self-care looks like for you, you are going to get run down poorly and stretched or whatever it is very fast. And then you're no good to anybody. So as much as we want to be superwoman and help everybody and all these things, that starts with putting yourself first which feels really selfish and hard to do. And I can see some people like nodding along like, yeah, fuck, I don't do enough of that. No. Like, please try and do a bit more of that because... I don't think any of us do. I think it's a really British thing as well. I think it's yeah. sort of like, oh, God, no, I'm so sorry. What, you first. What, you know, what do you want? What do you need? Like, we're all so apologetic. You go, and you go. You go first, yeah. <laughs> and inside, actually, this is the interesting bit, and I was talking to Owen O'Kane about this again the other day. We so often do that and go... Oh no no no! You you have the last biscuit, or you whatever, or something bigger than that. Like no no, it's fine. You do that thing. But inside we're going, I hate you. <laughs> I resent you so much for taking that last biscuit. I I resent you for. And you go, oh no no you don't. It's it's fine. We don't need to do that thing that I was really looking forward to. And inside you're going, I hate you for that. <laughs> I resent you so much. So actually, we're not doing anyone no. any good. And it's all about boundaries, which I say again really flippantly, but I'm awful at them and I have been for years. Hence why I'm obsessed with Melissa Urban. If any of you are interested in boundaries, she came on the podcast. She is the queen of boundaries. She's so hardcore with boundaries. It's like terrifying, but it's what we should be doing. She will tell someone, no, I'm so sorry. I can't, I can't help you do that. Whereas I'm going again, doing the thing. I'd love to help. What do you need? I'll be there a day early. And inside I'm going, I don't want to do this. And I don't like this person. And I resent the whole thing. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Like none of us are nailing the boundary thing. Yeah. And we need to have boundaries to enable ourselves to look, put ourselves first and yeah. to look after ourselves. None of this stuff's easy. I don't think me or you, Vicky, are sat here going, oh. be nice to yourself, love yourself, put yourself first. It's well easy. We wouldn't be talking about it if it was easy. It's really hard. And that's why we need to keep talking about it helping each other out with that message, encouraging each other, and also like saying it out loud to remind ourselves. Yeah. It's so, so important. Yeah. Oh, well said, mate. Bit of a rant there. Sorry about that, oh, guys. I liked it. Just had to get that out of my system. <laughs> um, do you know what? I literally can't believe I'm looking at this clock in front of me, it's and cool. we're on the 45-second countdown. That 
45-minute chat went insanely quickly, mainly because you're so easy to chat to, and I loved listening to you talk about your life and what you've been sharing with everyone. It's so beautiful. And once again, thank you so much for being at the Happy Place Festival. Everybody, please give it up for Vicky Patterson. Vicky, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed that chat and the energy in that talk tent was absolutely electric. So if you were there, thank you so much for bringing so much love and positivity with you. Oh, and also to the lovely woman whose phone rang. (laughs) I hope that your dad got his newspapers. All right, back next week with a brand new series and we'll be kicking it off with an absolute legend, a music icon. Until then, a huge thank you again to Vicky, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio and to you both for being at the festival and for being here now. You are the best. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com